Good morning. I have a very narrow topic today. I will warn you in advance. I've just got this slice of what we've read about. So um, if any of you have questions afterwards, Rhonda and I will be here afterwards about anything else you've been reading because there was a lot. I mean, I kept reading through this thinking, you know, I could just go on for like five hours, but that would be like really boring for all of you. So if you have questions, we'll be up here afterwards. Or if you have questions specifically about um, this little narrow topic, justification, that's a kind of a teaser that we're going to be talking about today. Let's open in prayer. Father, we know you're here with us. We thank you for the sacrifice that we read about this week. It's really just really unbelievable to us. It's, um, we think we kind of understand it, but it's not going to be possible for us to truly understand it until we're with you. We thank you for that. And I pray that you will speak to each of us today. These are your words, not mine. Speak through me so that we can really open our hearts to the message you have, not just for the teaching, but at the table time. And we can just be fully committed to listening to what you have to say to us um, this morning as we are here during the teaching and at the table time. And we thank you for bringing these women here and for um, giving us the opportunity to worship freely like this. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, I don't know about you, but I could feel the tension building the last few weeks in our reading. The last few miracles, the prayer alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, that last supper, Passover, it was definitely building. And we know what's coming. All of it. The hard suffering, but the glorious rising. We know that the hard part is just a prelude to the wonderful part. We know that. We know all of that. And yet it's still really hard to read. I don't know about you, but I've spent this year reading the New Testament, kind of putting myself into the shoes of the people that I'm reading about. What would it have been like to stand behind Jesus on that hill of tombs as he called out Lazarus, who'd been buried for days, and then watched as this dark cave, this man walked out, Lazarus trailing grave clothes behind him out into the sunshine. What would it have been like to see that? Or what would it have been like to stand in the crowd on the side of Jerusalem's main road, waving palm branches and just yelling your heart out for the Messiah as he rode into town on a donkey? So I've gotten pretty good at thinking about these New Testament events as if I were there. But this week, it was painful. I think I related too well to those people. There was no resurrection this week. This week was all about the suffering, the loss, the death of hope, uncertain future. We know that there is a rising. The hope not just returns, but returns with more substance than we ever imagined possible. We know that now there is a life and a future and a treasure more valuable than anything we've ever owned. 
The problem is, that's next week's reading. <laughs> and it will be glorious. And there will be joy and promise and hope returns. But that's next week. This week, there was none of that. None of that for those disciples and for the followers of Jesus, for his mother. This week, he's lying broken and lifeless in a borrowed tomb on a hot and dusty hillside. Sure, next week, there will be good things and hopeful things and positive things to talk about. But this week, there was none of that in the reading. So I kept circling around these passages, and I have a hard time reading them myself. It's too hard unless I keep reminding myself about next week's reading, when the joy returns. So I had this little habit, and I started writing down sort of factual things to kind of get away from that hard emotional side. And so I was thinking about the events I was reading. And I remembered that last week I hadn't been able to shake those thoughts about Judas. How could he have been so treacherous to someone he'd been with for years? He'd learned from Jesus. He'd protected Jesus. Last week, Judas pretty much fit the character he's been recognized as throughout the centuries. Evil, treacherous, a betrayer. Judas Iscariot the betrayer. That's a capital B. Probably the most reviled man, worse than Hitler, worse than serial killers. Dante, who wrote the Inferno, which was his vision of what hell will be like. You know, we don't know that it's not real hell, but it's, it's what his vision of hell would be like. He reserved the worst level for Satan and Judas, the traitors. So for me, it was easy to focus on this betrayal, as if Judas's kiss in the garden was the reason for all the pain we read about this week. Jesus captured and beaten and dead in the tomb. It hadn't occurred to me until I was reading it this week that most of the people we read about also had some responsibility for Christ's death, maybe as much or more than Judas, really. I started looking at this really familiar passage in different ways. At some point, many of them had an opportunity to stand up for the truth that is Christ, but they didn't. In legal terms, we would say that they have some culpability in Christ's death. Culpability is a legal term for blame or responsibility. So it had been easy for me to look at Judas and lay the blame squarely on his shoulders. You're the guy. You're the one who betrayed Jesus. It was less easy for me, as I started to do this week, to think about all the other factors that worked together to result in a body lying in that dusty tomb. So think about the Sanhedrin. They plotted Jesus' death before they believed he'd done anything wrong. As Megan explained last week, they broke their own laws in order to figure out a way to eliminate Jesus and protect their position and their comfort, their power in the community. 
So the Sanhedrin was the supreme court of ancient Israel, if you will. It was made up of 70 men, and they were village elders, respected men. They were tribal leaders, included the high priest, and these men called scribes. Scribes were learned men who, um, it was their business to study the law. So they transcribed it, they wrote commentaries about it, they prepared written documents, and they actually interpreted legal points. Today we call them lawyers. <laughs> so these powerful men not only plotted against Jesus, but they voluntarily, and when you read it, I would say they eagerly turned Jesus over to Pilate with this made-up charge. And then, after that, they persuaded this mob outside Pilate's house to pick Barabbas for pardon instead of Christ. And then there's Pilate himself. He said that he believed Jesus was innocent. Think about that. He believed Jesus was innocent. But he crucified him anyway in order to, among other things, gratify this mob of people that were outside his palace. He was busy protecting and preserving himself politically, socially, maybe physically he was concerned as well. He placated the crowd by releasing Barabbas instead of Jesus. He could have done things differently. And then there was Herod Antipas. We read about him in Luke 23. Herod Antipas, just because it gets a little confusing, was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who killed all the little baby boys trying to kill Jesus before he grew up. Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee. And remember, Jesus came from Galilee. So in Luke, we're told that Pilate, who was in charge of Judea, which includes Jerusalem, sent Jesus to Herod trying to shove off his responsibility. Hey, he's one of your citizens. I'm going to let you deal with him, Herod. And Herod, we read, was delighted because he'd wanted for a long time to meet Jesus. That tells me that he must have believed that Jesus could really do what he was doing. He wanted Jesus to perform a miracle for him. And when Jesus refused... Herod got mad. He mocked Jesus, and he sent him back to Pilate. You know? Herod says, I'm just here vacationing in Jerusalem. <laughs> this is your town. You take care of him. So those are a lot of the powerful people that we read about who had some responsibility, really, for Christ's persecution and his death. But the list of people who bore some responsibility just keeps going. And that's what we read about this week. What about the disciples? All of them denied him or deserted him. Not a one of them stayed or stuck up for him after he was led away from the garden. Sure, Peter grabbed a sword and he cut off the ear of Caiaphas' servant. But that was in the heat of the moment. When he saw all those soldiers gathered around escorting Jesus out, he realized this is serious. And he got worried, and he started denying him. Every one of them vanished or denied him. And then there were the soldiers themselves. 
They arrested Jesus. They kept him confined, but they didn't just do that. They mocked him. They hit him. They beat him. They didn't allow him to escape. Not one of them let him get away. They carefully kept him under control. And they beat him. And then there was the mob. Many of these people would have been the same people who stood on the sides of the street and waved palm branches and shouted Hosanna as Jesus entered Jerusalem. But now, not a one of them stood up for Jesus. And none of them convinced their neighbors, hey, let's shout Jesus instead of Barabbas. They all shouted for Barabbas instead. There were ordinary people, too, as Christ walked through Jerusalem on the way to where he would be crucified. There were ordinary people on the side of the road. And the Bible says that they mocked him, they shouted insults, and they stood and witnessed his execution. They could have done something different. Think about this. There was a lot of them. What if they'd risen up and freed him? They didn't. And finally, even the robbers... Okay, so they were criminals, right? But even they, they were both crucified on both sides of him. And initially, they both mocked Jesus. One of them had a change of heart later. But initially, they both mocked him. Matthew tells us, in the beginning, they both ridiculed Jesus. So, this week, as I was sort of exercising my new skill of relating to the people I'd read about in the New Testament, I realized that too often... I'm not so different than these people. How different am I than Peter when I feel hesitant about sharing Christ with people I know or meet? I mean, I don't deny him, but I sometimes don't share him either when I have a chance. The Sanhedrin twisted and ignored their own laws, the laws they said they believed in, so they could eliminate the threat to their comfort. And that threat was Jesus. So haven't I taken Bible verses out of context, deliberately or accidentally? I mean, you know, I read them and I think this is what I would, I think this is what this means because that makes me comfortable. Or haven't I tried to explain them away if they said something that made me uncomfortable or meant that I'd have to change some long-held attitude or belief about something? We read that Pilate apparently believed Jesus was innocent. He could find no fault on him. He called him the king of the Jews, which at that time meant ruler. But he didn't act on that belief. And, you know, don't I do that sometimes? Why can't I allow Jesus to manage all parts of my life all the time? Since I believe he is the son of the living God. What is there in me? Why is there this war in me about something that I believe honestly and completely? And it kind of goes on. That's, what I was, that's where I was going this week with this. So when I feel kind of superior or different than Judas or some of those people who crucified Christ, I kind of have to remember that I'm far too much like them too much of the time than I want to be. And I don't want to leave us here where we ended the reading this week. 
that dusty tomb with the stone rolled across the door when they thought that it was sealed. We know the rest of the story. We know that this week is going to be amazing and unbelievable when we do the reading. It's life-changing. There's an event coming in our reading this week that has massive implications for every human for all time. That's the resurrection of Christ. When that dead body is brought out, brought to life, and glorified, conquering death completely for us for all time, that sacrifice of the perfect man in Jesus makes us right with God. That's what we believe. He makes us right with God. And we're told that in many places in the New Testament. One of those places that I like is Titus 3.7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Being justified by his grace. Even easier to understand. So I went to the contemporary Bible. This one has a says it even easier to understand. It says, Jesus treated us much better than we deserve. He made us acceptable to God and gave us the hope of eternal life. So I don't know about you, if you noticed, there were a lot of legal terms and concepts in the stuff that we read this week. And Megan last week went over the list of illegal things that the Sanhedrin did, things illegal according to their own laws, and I was thinking about the reading in a kind of a legal perspective, and it kind of gave me a different insight into what went on. Instead of just reading it like, this is what I believe, I was reading it using my legal insight, which I had not done before. So that verse in Titus that I just read, there's a word that's very important in the New Testament. It's justified or justification. Remember it says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And the contemporary version, Jesus treated us much better than we deserve. He made us acceptable to God. That's the justification part. Acceptable to God and gave us the hope of eternal life. So I realized that this concept of justification tied directly into the feelings I've been having the last few weeks. And maybe it'll kind of ring a bell for you too. I felt responsible for Christ's death, for his betrayal, for my sin, for all the things I do wrong. I'm guilty. There's no way to think seriously or honestly about our sin without knowing that we're guilty. So some of you know this. I teach law. I teach litigation. And one of the things that allows a person accused of doing something wrong to escape punishment is called a defense. Like, I didn't do it. That one works. <laughs> if you didn't do it, then you aren't going to be held responsible for it. But that defense isn't going to work for us against our sin. We know we're guilty. We can't say, I didn't do it. We know we did it. Everyone sins. Our sins aren't all alike, but they're all sin. So to avoid our guilt about the sin that we know we have, I think we try a couple of things to deal with it. Some other defenses, if you will. 
We make a bargain with God. I will never do this again if you get me out of this. And then we rely on our inner strength to become a better person. But, you know, I've never been able to do that. I don't know about you. And I never will. And neither will you. Because Jesus tells us in John 15, 5, that apart from me, Jesus, you can do nothing. So pulling ourselves up by ourselves isn't going to work. So then sometimes we get really deeply involved in working to earn our way out of guilt. If I go to church every week and I tithe and I read my Bible every day and I go to Mexico, you know, I try and substitute good things for the guilt. I think that maybe if I built up this huge pile of good stuff that I do, and if it gets big enough, it's going to overwhelm or cover up the guilt that I have. And maybe God won't notice the sin because he'll be so impressed with all the really good things I've been doing. So, anybody here have that work for you? (laughs) Yeah, me either. It doesn't work. Okay, we try it, but it doesn't work. And the reason for that is that saving grace comes from faith, not from working or trying to earn your way to God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no no one may boast. So, we've seen we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps alone, and we can't work our way to feeling like we've earned salvation or have somehow paid God back for this amazing gift of his son. We can't do it ourselves alone, and we can't work hard enough to feel that we've earned salvation. So sometimes, deep inside, we just allow ourselves to feel and believe that we'll never be good enough. We're pretty sure that we're not the worst person on the planet. But we're just not worthy of this amazing gift of eternal life and power and peace that we read about. And we think we don't deserve it. And we're right. It's a gift. Now, we don't say this out loud, usually. Too often, we just believe it deep inside. And too often, we act like we believe it. So when we hear that God loves us or that we're a child of God, we just don't quite believe totally, without reservation, that it applies to me. We believe it for others. And we can be totally convincing for others in explaining God's infinite love. We know that God loves you infinitely. We believe that. But when it comes to me personally, it's just harder to believe it deep down inside. There's this little room inside us where the door is just stuck. It won't open to the light. We guard it. Because maybe that little hidden room smells bad. Or it looks bad. And we think we can keep it secret so that other people won't see inside. 
that deep and hidden belief that we try to hide or maybe that we even deny we have, that we're just not worthy, pops up in the least expected places. We're anxious or we're fearful. We don't feel very joyful. Our walk with Christ isn't as comfortable as it used to be. Our prayers are shorter and quicker and not so comfortable. I don't want to live like that. And I don't think you probably do either. But I'm also sometimes, honestly, not sure that I want to open that door. Because what if I'm right and I am unworthy? So... Think about this. We're having coffee, and I said that to you. I think maybe I'm not unworthy. I'm not worthy. I think I am unworthy, really. You're not, but I think I am. What would you tell me? You might say to me something like, let's read Romans 5.1 that says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or you might say, let's read Romans 3.28 together. A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. You'd tell me that I was justified, and you'd be right. That's the answer. We are justified without doing anything but having faith in Christ. But if you're like me, that's not the first time I've heard that verse. And still, I can feel pretty unworthy. The problem is that I needed to really understand what it means to be justified. So I was kind of looking at myself going, you know, this should be easy. You're a lawyer. Justification is a legal term. I'm familiar with it. I just never had made the connection between justification as a legal defense and what what it really means to be justified by faith. It's the same concept. So in the law, if you've done something wrong, but you have justification, that's an excuse, remember? You're off the hook. I know this. I teach this concept. This is true. You can rely on it. It's how the legal system works. And God based his system on justice and laws. Mercy, absolutely but mercy within the confines of justice and law. And God uses this term justification again and again and again. And he uses it in the same way that we use it in our system today. It is today and it always has been a legal term that has an exact and clear definition or meaning. So no matter what someone has done, theft, murder, fraud, battery, you name it. Whatever someone has done, if there is a justification and excuse for that, that person is not responsible for what he or she did. Justification is a complete defense. That's what we say. It's a complete defense. So the legal mumbo-jumbo is really hard to understand. Justification is a legal excuse for the performance or non-performance of a particular act that is the basis for exemption from guilt. Okay, even I don't really understand that. (laughs) It's a little too confusing. So let's look at some synonyms for justification. Alibi, exonerate, vindicate, excuse. These are some words that mean the same as justification. 
So in relation to sin, if a person's sins are justified, those sins are fully and completely excused. All of them. In the original language of the Bible, justification was used as a legal term to mean acquit. It was the opposite of condemn. One commentator said that, you know, in religion, justification points to the process whereby a person is declared to be right before God. That's pretty cool. Declared to be right before God because you have justification. Now, remember, that's a person who's done something and they are declared to be right before God. So I loved what Easton's Bible Dictionary said. They explain this further. It says, it is the judicial act of God by which he pardons all the sins of those who believe in Christ. And he accounts, accepts, and treats them as righteous. So those people are treated as righteous in the eye of the law. As if they had conformed to every one of its demands. So in addition to the pardoning from sin, it declares that all the claims of the law are satisfied in respect to the justified. The law is not relaxed or set aside. They don't say, well, we'll just give you a different law to abide by. It's the same law, but the law is declared to be fulfilled in the strictest sense. So the person justified is declared to be entitled to all the advantages and rewards arising from perfect obedience to the law. So if they had perfectly obeyed the law, they would get the same thing as we get because we're justified. Now, Easton's Bible Dictionary didn't, like, make that up. That's from Romans 5, 1 through 10. They just put it in different words. So let me read Romans 6 through 10 to us. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly sinners. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That means we didn't do anything, and he gave us this gift that reconciled us to him. We didn't have to take even the first step other than believing in Christ. So, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we're justified by faith in Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. Christ died and he rose again, and if we believe in Christ as the Son of God and accept him as our Lord, then that justification, that complete and full justification or forgiveness is applied to our lives at that moment for all time. It's not a cafeteria process, you know, where we pick and choose which one of our sins are going to be justified or completely excused. All of them are justified, even the ones we try to hide, even the ones we keep locked up in that little room. With this act of justification, God doesn't make a distinction between the hidden sins and the ones we acknowledge and confess. All of them are justified, excused, wiped out, as if they had never happened. 
So let's go back, rewind to where we were talking about feeling unworthy. The Bible tells us Christ's death justified us before God, excused all our sins, made us right with God from the moment we turn to Christ as our Lord. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us we become a new creation. And from that moment, we are justified before God, acquitted of our sin, excused from it, one time, once and for all, justified, freed from the penalty of sin, which is death and separation from God. Now, we still sin, right? And we may even do the same sins that we did before we started following Christ. But being justified, we have freedom forever from the penalty of those sins that we commit. Living our lives from now on is a process of kind of overcoming the power of sin in our life. But the penalty is gone. Rhonda and I were going over this point and... Um, here's how she described it, which I think is a really great description, so I'm just going to read it to you. She said, God the judge declares us not guilty forever, but sin is still a powerful influence and a temptation in this world. God in his wisdom determined that our transformation would be a walk or a process, so we must remain in Christ and depend on the power of Christ. So here's kind of what I think. I feel unworthy sometimes because I've allowed the power of sin to take over my thoughts and my feelings. The penalty of sin is gone. I mean, I believe the Bible. It's gone. But the power of sin, I let it take over my thoughts and feelings. I shouldn't because I'm justified before God. The penalty of my sin is gone. I don't have anything to hide or feel unworthy about anymore. But sin gets in and it wriggles around in my head and it tells me that it is too big a gift to give without a price. Sin tells me, you wouldn't give something that is priceless to someone for free, would you? So it wriggles around or sometimes it stands up right in front of me and waves its arms and says, that doesn't make any sense, so it must not be true. That's the power of sin trying to rob me of peace and relaxation and comfort. The penalty of sin, which is separation from God because of justification, is already wiped out of my life. But the power of sin still tells me, how could that possibly be? Mic drop. Okay, finally I think I'm getting it. It's done. The judge has rendered his decision, and that decision was that we are justified, acquitted now and forever. So when I start to think that I don't deserve what God has done, I need to stop right then. I need to think about that. It wasn't my decision to make. It was God's decision to justify my life. I didn't have anything to do with it. It wasn't what I did. It was God's decision as the judge, and he decided, based on the evidence of Christ's sacrifice, that I was justified, acquitted. By thinking I'm unworthy, I'm doubting God's judgment. So what I need to do is what it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. 
It says that we as believers, using the power that Christ gave us, can take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So when I think maybe I'm unworthy of God's lover's blessings, I need to take that thought captive. I need to tie it up. I need to throw it away. I need to remember what it tells me in the Bible about being justified. I'm justified before God now and forever as a follower of Christ. I may sin because the power of sin is strong in this world, but the penalty of sin in my life is wiped out forever. I'm justified. I could say I am completely acceptable before God because Christ paid the price that satisfied God once and for all. Not because of anything I've done other than believing in Christ. So I hope this makes a little sense to you. I told you I was really narrow. I hope it makes some sense when that little voice wriggles around in your head and tells you that you're not worthy or you're not deserving. You are. Every one of you who believes in Christ is worthy. And I know that because the Bible tells us that's the truth. It tells us that God has justified or fully accepted you by your faith when you trust in Christ. So that's all I have this morning. And I'm going to stay up here, and Rhonda has some. Rhonda will be here too. If you have questions about the reading, otherwise, if you have questions about what I talked about today, please come up and talk to me. I'd be happy to uh, explain justification because it's a pretty cool gift. <laughs>